summer children. Today's your lucky day, isn't it? No, you can't go to the grocery store, but what you can do is listen to an episode of Peep This Noise. I'm Logan Johnson, and across the airwaves coming to us live are... Hi, I'm Greg Marchant. And I'm Nathaniel Johnson. Awesome. Well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, miniseries, Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along Blog, uh, a Joss Whedon joint that was made... Is that is that a right way to say that? A Joss Whedon joint? Every time I say it, I, I think a Michael get... Scott joint. <laughs> like a threat level midnight. <laughs> right, Scott! <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's uh, The Electric City was a Michael Scott joint. <laughs> uh, no, I uh, I was thinking when you said a Joss Whedon joint, I was like, joint? Like an elbow joint? I am so confused. I'm so lost here. Man, you've got to get hip with the culture. But that's okay, because your mind's in 2008 with Dr. Hor- Horrible Sing-Along Blog. You yeah, picked this one for us. Why don't you introduce it? Yeah, so Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog is, like you said, it came out in 2008, and it was uh, made by Joss Whedon, starring, of course, the uh, wonderful Neil Patrick Harris as Dr. Horrible himself. And co-starring with him are Nathan Fillion, who plays Captain Hammer, and the charming Felicia Day, who plays uh, Penny. No last name. Uh, just Penny's the only name we're ever given for her. Um, and the whole miniseries takes about 45 minutes and is... It, it's one of my favorite takes on the superhero genre ever. And I love my superhero movies. Like, if you ask me, like, oh, well, like, what's your favorite superhero movie? I would say probably anything the MCU's done or the Fantastic Four movie that Disney made and called The Incredibles. One of those would probably be it. Uh, but I really, uh, really appreciate Dr. Horrible's sing-along vlog because it kind of satirizes all of that. Um, but what's interesting is it satirizes it before the MCU became a thing. Iron Man came out just a couple months before Dr. Horrible's sing-along vlog did, uh, which means we didn't have an Iron Man 2, we didn't have Captain America or Thor... Uh, we might have had Hulk. We definitely had previews for Hulk at this point, but like, the, this was not the MCU was not even a term that people were throwing around out there. All that had happened is Robert Downey Jr. had done a stellar performance as Iron Man, and that's all we had. And this didn't Scarlett Johansson show up too? She shows up in Iron Man too. Oh really? Uh huh. So yeah, nothing had happened, huh? Yeah, like, Nick Fury shows... What happens is Nick Fury shows up at the end of that after the credits, and they tease the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe will be a thing. Um, and then Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog... Right, at the end of Iron Man. And then Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog comes out just a few months later, and not only is it a critique on the superhero genre, um, in some really fun and creative ways, I think, but it's also a musical? Um, and anybody who knows me knows that I have a... Uh, more than just a passing appreciation of, a mu- of musicals. Um, I've never been to Broadway or anything, but like my dream is to go to Broadway and watch all of those great shows that everybody talks about because they've been there for years, whether that's Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis or Cats even, because, you know, I'm a masochist. And so... <laughs> um, I, I'm I wanna... masochist, please. <laughs> oh! Ooh. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in to Peep This Noise. We're going to go out on that Remember, note. everybody likes bad puns. <laughs> Remember, thanks for tuning in to Speak This Noise. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's a jellical time. <laughs> Dude, it's always a jellical time, as Carly Rae Jepsen in Owl City once said.
I don't think that's what they said. <laughs> Just remember, a cat... Yeah, if you've seen the music video, they may as well have. Just remember, a cat is not a dog. No, but a cat is a person. Um, we've gone wildly off the rails <laughs> no. here, but let's... Yeah, we have. Let's loop it. Let's loop it back away from the Dick Van Dyke show and back toward Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. So you, you alluded to the fact that Iron Man kicked off the MCU right before Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, what yeah, your thoughts so are about how the reason, the reason I bring that all up, yeah, the reason I bring that up is because, like I said, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog serves as this critique of the superhero genre. Before we really have the superhero genre, I mean, we did have the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy um, in the early 2000s, as well as a couple of the Fox hey, X-Men movies. We had Elektra as well. Like We, ha- we also had on. Elektra and Daredevil. Right? Like, we had standalone movies, but we there was nothing like the MCU at the time. Like, the MCU I have bad was... news for you. Elektra's a spinoff. Sorry okay. to split hairs, but it's no, a No, no, no. You're fine. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um... <laughs> But, I'm just saying, we stand a queen, all right? <laughs> I hated that movie. <laughs> I am sure you did. I am sure you did. Um, but my point is, like, most people's experience with superhero movies was either a little bit of X-Men or a little bit of Spider-Man, or if you go back a little farther, uh, some of the Tim Burton and Jerry Schumacher Batman films or the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. And that's like... It, I guess Blade was popular, but, you know. You also, there were superheroes around, but moviegoers didn't experience superheroes in the way that you do in the MCU, right? Right. The MCU is like comic books. Right. Right. There are crossover events, there are recurring characters, there are recurring themes and ideas. There weren't, there wasn't that before. Right. Like, there, there were always plans to do things like that. A cool bit of trivia here. Uh, Hugh Jackman, who of course played Wolverine in the X-Men series, uh, during the filming of Spider-Man 2, I think it was, uh, was in town um, for like a week or two or three days or something, and was on the set and was available. And they were like, hey, do you want to do a Wolverine cameo? And they got all the paperwork figured out, and they were going to get it done. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, But they could never find his costume. Somebody had lost his Wolverine costume. And so they just couldn't make the cameo happen, so it just never was. Um, that's probably for the best that might have sunk the MCU I know but like <laughs> it, my point is like this has always kind of been somebody's dream at some point to do totally. um, but it hadn't actually ever happened um, and yet and so with that said like if you were to go watch a superhero movie you would go watch a Spider-Man movie you wouldn't like expect to go watch a Captain America movie to be introduced to Spider-Man that's just not how that would work Um, and so what I want to talk about is how, where it was such a relatively, it was still a blockbuster genre, but it wasn't huge like it is now, um, where each of the Avengers movies is making $2 billion a piece. Um, how do you guys feel like Dr. Horribles serves as a satirization of the movies that have come after the fact? I, okay, so I was thinking about this. Um, and of, of course my first thought is that Dr. Horrible's uh, blog is kind of like a, a documentary made by 
someone who disapproves of the of the Avengers initiative or something like that. Um, kind of a Captain America Civil War scenario. But my second thought, and hopefully the better one, is um, it's a show called My Hero Academia. Okay. Dr. Horrible feels kind of like a My Hero Academia uh, villain. My Hero Academia is an anime. It took over um, when the when the very famous long-running anime Naruto finished running. Um, My Hero Academia took over um, its spots in the popularity rankings. Um, so it's very big right now. It's a very well-done show that explores... Um, that explores uh, superheroes as that explores like non um, non uh, stereotypical superheroes um, people who don't exactly fit the mold but are still definitely uh, still definitely heroic characters. Um, it's it's a really good show to watch, but a lot of the villains are kind of like um, a lot of the most uh, iconic villains are kind of like people who um, feel disenfranchised within superhuman society. The premise of this show being that roughly 80% of the world's population are born with a quirk, some kind of metahuman ability, um, and there are certain people within that society who now feel disenfranchised by the fact that there are all of these superheroes running around. And they're not necessarily just the people who don't have a quirk. They, some of them are like a, there's a, there's a minor side character who, who, um, he's a minion of a bad guy and he, his anger is that his quirk isn't more powerful. So he was never able to, to go to a superhero high school and, uh, and become a superhero. Um, he just, uh, he was just, um, able, uh, he was, he was always kind of a flunky because his abilities weren't as powerful as um, as they wanted them to be for uh, for superhero purposes. Um, Doctor Horrible kind of feels like uh, the type of villain that you get in that show um, because uh, uh, because he is um, kind of reacting against what he sees as the ills in his society, feeling like he can do a better job. Now, My Hero Academia is in and of itself kind of a critique of, or kind of a, kind of a take on superheroes, but what if they didn't exactly fit all these stereotypes that we have? So it's already kind of like Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog in that way. But um, I think the, the commentary there is that both uh, my take on it is that both of those, both of these shows, one before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and one uh, arriving kind of along with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, are pushing back against classic uh, superhero villain dynamics. Um, they're they're trying to find, um, they're trying to define, not necessarily like. A superhero is a hero because they save the day, but also because they're uh, also because they you know actually stand for something uh, important or good and have you know and have some kind of morals that um, that people find attractive. Like Doctor Horrible, he's our hero in the show, 
Yeah. He's the one who we see as the he's the one who we see as the uh, the underdog who has lofty um, who has lofty in general idealistic goals, while Captain Hammer is a, a tool, and of course that's probably intentional on the part of the writers. <laughs> we are going to talk about Nate. Well, so let's talk about naming conventions for a second. Uh, this is fun. Uh, so let's talk about like a ton of superheroes and comic book characters and whatnot, just like in brief. Uh, as a quick rule of thumb, anybody named Doctor is a bad guy in comic books. Because think about it. Now there are there's an obvious exception with Doctor Strange, but like and Doctor think about Fate, it. thank you. And Doctor Fate. Okay, <laughs> though. Ugh, do not like Doctor Fate. He's kind of a bad guy. He's like lawful neutral, and I hate it. Well, okay, what about uh, Doctor Manhattan? Okay, you make a solid point. However, <laughs> however... Yeah, Dr. Manhattan, not sure how great of a guy he is, but I get your point. But as a rule, like, look at how many people in uh, both Marvel and DC have doctorates, but they do not use that in their title at all. Whereas no, villains I'm playing tend devil's to. advocate. I know you are. Um, but, like, Batman has doctorates, uh, Iron Man has doctorates, Spider-Man gets doctorates at some point... Uh, Mr. Fantastic has a doctorate, but Mr. Fantastic, his biggest nemesis is Doctor Doom. Right? Yeah, well, he could be Doctor Fantastic. Right, but instead they choose not Please, to do Mr. that. Mr. Fantastic was my father, Doctor Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that, that's really good. Um, but, like, lots of these characters, right, like, they have doctorate in their, they have doctorates and they don't use them, but their villains do. Um, whereas on the other hand, uh, you get a lot of military terms as positive things for the good guys, like Captain. You've got Captain America, Captain Marvel, Captain Canuck, um, Captain Britain, right? Like, Captain is like this huge, uh, hallmark of that's a good guy, um, but Captain isn't really used, or military terms like that aren't used for villains as much. Um, but what's also kind of cool is they will often pick weapons for bad guys as well as, like, their name in there. So um, I just blanked on all of the uh, ones that, you know, have na- have uh, weapons in their names. But I can only think of heroes, honestly. I'm from, like, Green Arrow. Yeah, I just, like... Yeah, Red thank you. Arrow, so Green Arrow. Lots of arrows. Yeah, but... He, Black but, Manta is a bad guy. He's Manta's not a... Yeah, he yeah, was the one that, like, for some reason I keep circling uh, back to. Um, if there's an animal in their name, they're also a good guy. Too. Right, like, you've got all this stuff. But what's interesting is Dr. Horrible, Doctor, is the obvious bad guy. He's a villain trying to do the villainous things, but he's our protagonist in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Captain Hammer is clearly the bad guy. Like, he's the guy that none of us as the audience uh, should be rooting for. I actually really love Nathan Fillion's performance, though, as Captain Hammer. I think it's one of the most fun <laughs> things. Um, but yeah, like, they, they take these they take these superhero naming conventions and they kind of say, like, hey, let's intentionally give our protagonist a villain name and intentionally give our uh, our hero, I mean, our villain a hero name so that it feels weird when they come into conflict mm-hmm. and we are rooting for the villain um it, of course it's no surprise that joss whedon uh is the one who directed this and he would also go on to direct the avengers um so i guess it's not surprising that he's so comfortable satirizing it when he's already clearly so comfortable with 
superheroes in general. Right. Yeah. I wonder, too, if that has something to do with what we were talking about earlier with Dr. Horrible being a little bit predictive of of the arc of some of these superhero films over the last couple of uh, times, right? Over the last couple of years, last decade or so. Is that Marvel Joss Whedon was so heavily involved? Yeah, for the first little bit, at least. The Marvel movies take a turn for the silly. Yes. Right? And I don't mean that They're as an inherent more. critique. Yeah. I don't mean that as an inherent critique of their uh, goodness or quality, because that's one of the only reasons I go to see a Marvel movie is because they're very funny to me. And I think that the writing is often very, very sharp. That said, what happens is you do this, you have this thing where a Marvel movie will, will try to then have a deep emotional punch, right? Like uh, infinity war and Endgame. I realized that those did a lot for comic book fans and for people who really like comic book movies, as far as being like really emotive films, but like, they're not nearly as emotive as as some of the other films like academy award winners and things like that right like they don't even come close they kind of pale in comparison honestly um which makes some sense right um but i do think it's interesting that the way that dr horrible takes this kind of funny turn the way the marvel movies do and then has kind of a weird ending that's also trying to be like a solid emotional punch and in my opinion, also kind of fails as an emotional beat, given the absurdity of the rest of the film. Oh, interesting. Um, I think it works very well. Okay, we'll say more about that, because I, I think it's the absurdity. I think the dichotomy doesn't work here. Um, it doesn't I, do it for me. I think it's the dichotomy that makes it interesting. Now, Greg, you watched this movie just like yesterday, I'm presuming, or something really close uh, to that. Sunday. Yeah, Sunday. Uh, do you think that the emotional punch at the end works i didn't think there was an emotional punch at the end i, I had a different that's my point it. i was confused when I, when I watched the when i watched the movie i'll i'll elaborate a little bit so that that makes sense by the way we're, we're pulling spoilers off as we always do on this like you can spoil whatever because yeah we're gonna have to talk about the end in detail now so um so as as we were winding up the, the last scene and I, I was feeling a little bit of tension because Penny had just been like uh, stabbed with shrapnel from the exploding super weapon um, that Captain Hammer had set off in his hubris, um, and she was she was over there dying, and then um, and then my child was playing and I had to wrangle him for a second and he was chatting at me, being really cute, and I um, missed what Penny said to Doctor Horrible. And then all of a sudden I had this scene, uh, I, I was treated to the scene of him succeeding in all of his goals and um, succeeding in all of his goals and demoralizing Captain Hammer and joining, uh, joining Bad Horse at the, at the table of the evil, of the evil, yeah, evil league of evil, <laughs> evil leave of evil, something, no. That, evil League of Evil, I think, is what it is, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. I was just about to say Eagle Weeb of <laughs> Evil. Um, anyway, so uh, he, I was treated to that scene, and then suddenly it ended. The, the whole thing ended, and I was like, what? What just happened? Why wasn't he sad that she died? And I missed the part where she said, don't worry, Captain Hammer will save us. And then she died. 
and then the whole thing made a lot more sense to me. Like this, uh, to me, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big emotional punch. It was okay. Yeah, it makes sense. We've been seeing Cap, uh, not Captain Horrible, Doctor Horrible, get more and more, um, get more and more intense, like more and more driven towards his goals and willing to do whatever it takes as the show has gone on, gone on, and then he at the end just has this final push where he's like, yep, you know, this is sad, but she doesn't matter to me much anymore. If uh, this, uh, this love interest doesn't matter to me very much anymore, if her last dying breath is, oh, don't worry, your, your nemesis will save us. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that my nemesis is screwed now. But I didn't feel like there was a big emotional huh. punch. I just thought it was a really satisfying moment when, as soon as, um, as soon as, Elena clued me and she was watching along with me the whole time. Right. Fun because she knew all the words to the songs. The songs are so great. Um, yeah, they are. Um, anyway, so as soon as she filled me in on what uh, what Penny had said to Dr. Horrible, I was like, oh yeah, now it makes sense. That was, that totally makes sense why he just like completely went over the edge to being a full real villain. And it, I felt I felt like that was a satisfying conclusion, but I didn't feel like there was an emotional punch at the end. I, I just thought it was, oh, this is the logical conclusion, the logical satisfying conclusion of a bad guy becoming a bad guy. It was an or I felt like it was an origin story for a supervillain. Oh, it was definitely I that. I agree with you to a degree, but I think there's a degree when you talk about the logical satisfying conclusion. And, and we're going to talk about Hero's Journey a bit, I think. But Yeah, we are. The logical, satisfying conclusion is not the thing that happens in these movies, right? What happens in these movies is the happy thing, right? And yes, yeah. he's a bad guy, air quotes, but he really isn't in a lot of ways. He He's a little more sensitive, and, and he, he's pretty bad at being a bad guy. Like he Doesn't he get rejected the first time he submits his application to be a bad guy? Um, um, it's implied that he's been rejected several times already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, a robbery, a show of force, a murder would be nice, of course. Yeah. Uh, sincerely exactly yours, so. bad horse. <laughs> like, they specifically say, like, in the letter that they, th- that's uh, sung to him in a telegram style. They specifically say, like, hey, you, you should probably murder somebody if you really want to have a table at the Evil League of Evil, which is uh, great that it then ends up being his, the girl he would love to uh, have be his romantic partner in his life, um, is, is the one that he murders, or at least claims the credit for murdering. Yeah. Which is... And I think that that's, yeah. I guess, kind of my point, like... Yeah, it's the natural conclusion, but I think that they're still trying to go for, like, a tone of sudden sadness with her death and everything, and a a tone of disappointment where he never really was cut out to be a villain in the first place. And even his acceptance into the Evil League of Evil is predicated on something he did by accident. Like, he's really not cut out for this, and I think that there's a degree to which they're trying to play on that. But I'm, I land in your camp on this, Greg, in the sense that that didn't... I felt like that was what they were trying to do, and it just didn't work for me. Because it did feel like such a natural conclusion and such a natural extension of what was going on that, you know, given the absurdity of his positioning, I never really saw the happy ending as an attainable goal, right? Yeah. And so I... 
I think that I agree with you on that. I think it makes a lot of sense because this story does this thing where it, it kind of turns all of the tropes onto their head. And I, well, I think that's interesting and subversive. I don't, or subversive for the time, I guess. I don't necessarily think that that is, it was particularly emotive, I guess was the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. I, I think I agree with you there. Um, where, when we talked about Frozen 2, we talked about how Frozen 2 kind of sidesteps the natural conclusion, like the natural consequences of the hero's yes. actions at the end of the movie, but seems to do it deliberately to be making a kind of uh, philosophical point. Um, in in this case, the they, uh, they seemed to give us the they seem to give us the, the villain's, like, logical act. Like, they seem to give us the natural ending. Um, but it, but this time they're... But they did give us the natural ending, but there wasn't necessarily a, a strong uh, philosophical point um, the same way that there, there was with Frozen avoiding the natural ending. Frozen 2, I mean... Yeah, I think I think I agree with you on that as well. That makes a lot of sense to me that that they there's not that philosophical point. Not only did they sidestep they sidestepped the philosophical point but kept the natural conclusion, right? It it is almost there's a weird dichotomy between those two films, a through line that I guess I I didn't see, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, well, so here's of course I disagree with you guys. I do think that there is um this emotional punch that is a very that is supposed to just kind of leave you feeling like, huh, didn't like that. Um, and I think there's a very strong point to doing that. So the way I see it is, right from the beginning, we know what Dr. Horrible's goals are. And he's got he's got two goals. He's got the goal he really wants, which is to have a meaningful relationship with Penny. Mm-hmm. And then he's got the other goal, which is that to be a super... That he thinks he wants, which is to be a supervillain. And he gets that goal for sure. And he does not get to be with Penny, right? And we see him at the celebration of him joining the evil League of Evil and having a seat at the table. And they're singing and it's kind of triumphant. And uh, he says, I think, um, I feel... And then it cuts to him in his uh, little apartment looking at his webcam and he just says, nothing. And then he turns off the webcam and the movie's over. Um... And, like, it's it's this weird realization on his part that, like, he doesn't care about this anymore. Like, this isn't what he actually wanted. He's got it. Yay. He worked real hard for it. I feel nothing. He's yeah, an and I think... Or an anime antagonist. Now. Right. That's exactly what he is. Um, but I think by pointing that out, there is a point to be made that, like, he... He very directly threw away what he wanted in order to get this other thing that he thought he wanted. And there's no way he can ever go uh, back and fix that. Uh, did he, I mean, and, and I guess this is where I land with Captain Horrible on this. I also feel nothing. <laughs> wait, Captain Horrible? Do you mean Dr. Horrible? I, Dr. Horrible. Man, these names. Um, no, where I land on this is I also feel nothing because... We can say he sacrificed what he really wanted for what he kind of wanted, but he, like, wicked mad didn't do that. Right. Um, it wasn't directly his fault that Penny died. Not only that, 
she was into Captain Hammer in a pretty major way. Yes. Well, that one. She, um, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm like, I know that he like had feelings about it, but it was largely in his head. You know. Yeah. What did he actually lose? Well, something he never had, for one. But right. also, I I just don't know. I like for me this this didn't really work because if her dying words are Captain Hammer will save us, he didn't accidentally kill somebody who he had this strong relationship with. He accidentally killed somebody who had this strong relationship with Captain Hammer, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. I just. I don't think that that that's where I think it breaks down a little bit. Sure. In this this tension between what he wanted, what he actually wanted and never had, and then what he kind of wanted and always had to a degree, you know. Right. Um, I don't know. So that's I think where that that emotion breaks down for me a little bit. That's fair. Um, I do think that it is also a a fun subversion of the superhero genre, um, because. Even though he like does villainous things, I think it's fair for to for us to call him our superhero in this story, um, because you know he's our protagonist. Um, as we said, superhero movies do end with the character getting like things work out for the character in the end, um, right? But it doesn't for Captain Hammer here. I mean, for uh, Doctor Horrible here or Captain Hammer. That's actually worth mentioning. Neither of them is happy at the end. Like nobody feels like. This was a victory for anyone. Not really. No, none of the two people who really matter. Um, and that's kind of a bummer. And then it just ends. <laughs> and I don't know. I've always loved that. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a really enjoyable film. While the emotional beat at the end doesn't work well for me, I do think it's it's still a great um a great version of, of a superhero film and a great representation of, of a kind of superhero, supervillain origin story. I, I like it. That said, I just never really felt that emotion, you know? I could tell they were trying to go for it, and it just didn't quite get to me. That's fair. Well, let's go ahead and move into our next question. I feel like we've spent plenty of time on this first one. So the next question is, of course, about the fact that Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog is a musical, uh, which is really unusual for a superhero genre. Um, how do you feel like this impacts the storytelling? I, I definitely think it lightens, the, it lightens the tone, which might have something to do with, um, which might have something to do with uh, why, for, uh, for some of us, the end of it didn't have as much of an emotional punch. Um, it did feel really interactive, which was nice. I, I kind of wished as I was listening to it that I had had subtitles on so that I could know the words to the songs the first time. That That's fair, yeah. When I heard it was a sing-along blog, that is exactly what I expected. It definitely got me on the side of our protagonist, even though he was the bad guy, because he was the one with the the good guy sounding lyrics in most of the songs except for the most epic song which <laughs> everyone's which a is... hero in their own way no no I, you and no. you and mostly me and you 
<laughs> yeah, you know, no. If we wanted uh, to include music, I could have just we could have bought an MP3 and I could have <laughs> that bad boy. But it's not. Nah, I thought I'd now. just sing along. That's what we'll do for our next episode. I'll just sing from the album. Greg, you should have sung Blackpink last time. Yes, I should have. I. <laughs> you could all enjoy my horrible Korean pronunciation. <laughs> oh, that'd be so good. I'm here but for it. We can all pronounce the words Blackpink in your area, which I sense realized starts off Pink like in your songs. area. <laughs> uh, but no, um, but yeah. it does put a silly tone on it. I agree, and it it also, like I said, got me on the side of our protagonist. Like I, I didn't have any trouble rooting for the bad guy because he was the one that I was singing along with. Yeah, yeah, I do think there's something really cool here about um, the simplicity of the songwriting and and the performance as well that lends itself to being a sing along stylistically when you start talking about like types of music a sing-along is just not something you subtitled right um there's a type of music that you would sing along to usually children's music is sing-along music campfire songs are sing-along music it's a very specific style and i think that dr horrible's sing-along blog fits into the style of song that is simple enough that you want to sing along instead of appreciating the musical nuance, right? And that's not a dunk against it. I think it really lands nicely in 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 what it's trying to do and what it's trying to be. And it, it I'm completely sold on the soundtrack for this thing. Right. It's like when people make the weirdly erroneous statement that pop music is simple to write. Um, if that were true, everybody would write pop music and be pop stars. Pop music isn't simple to write country music is i'm not going to back off that hill and maybe one day i'll live stream 45 minutes of me writing a country song to prove it all right (laughs) pop music i'll say um pop music is is not easy to write if everybody did it i agree with you yeah and it's the production too largely right and the production in dr horrible is very straightforward and lends itself to this really strong forward melody that makes you want to sing along. And I think that's a really good thing for them to do here. Right. And I guess my point is just because like, it's relatively simple to sing along with does not make it easy to write. Like there's still like, no, totally. Yeah. There was still effort and time put into making that work the way that it does. Um, sure. I, but to contrast this, sorry to interrupt, you're good. But to contrast this with another musical style. I mean, this is, if you had told me that, um, what are their names? Uh, Swampy Marsh and Dan, not Aykroyd. What's his name? Uh, the, the Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if you had told me they had Ackerman. been in on Dr. Horrible's. Wait, it's what? Sorry. Ackerman, I think. No, that is, isn't that Attack on Titan? No, How I do don't I think that? so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Ackerman. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Either way. Um, yeah, either way, it's this uh, this style that they write of music. If you told me that they had helped write this, right? They, they got to a point in Phineas and Ferb where they were sitting in a room for half an hour and writing a new song for every single episode. Dan right? Povenmire, and if you would, by the way. Dan Povenmire. Um, and I, I looked it up. The uh, Ackerman is definitely Attack on Titan. I don't uh, know how I knew that, but it, okay. it is. That is wild um, that you knew that. I know. I had a friend tell me about it once. But, um, yeah, Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh, if you had told me they had been in on this, I would have believed you. The songs are that simple and that catchy. The, a lot of these songs have the same 
energy as a, a gitchy gitchy goo, right? Like uh, a very specific kind of, we want you to sing along to this song because it's going to be a one hit wonder. These things <laughs> carry the same energy. And I guess that's, that's the point. If I'd remembered uh, the person's name, the point would have been clearer. But I think that's the point I'm trying to make is, is that you could tell me these were Phineas and Ferb songs and I would almost believe you. You know, I'd, I'd almost be there, which is, I think, really cool. And, and it, the songwriting in that show has been praised many, many times. It's really good. Yeah. Um, especially no, how quickly most of it was done. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's very impressive. Deal. I think they do well here. Um, I think they do well with Horrible Sing-Along Bog, too. I think what's interesting about having it be a musical, um, first of all, I think that it plays to Neil Patrick Harris's strengths as a performer. Um, he, he belongs in musicals. Um, he's very good in them. Uh, that's why a series of unfortunate events is a musical on Netflix, um, or at least has musical numbers regularly spaced throughout, which fits because his character is a performer who will make musical numbers happen. Um, right. But Neil Patrick Harris is able to breathe such a life into that kind of performance that it works very well. Um, but I think that the other thing that it does is, okay, so there's something that, people talk about when they talk about musicals on stage versus musicals in a movie. And um, it also happens a lot with animated cartoons and live action stuff. And it's the suspension of disbelief. When we, when we watch a movie, we always have to suspend a certain amount of our disbelief. We just have to be willing to accept the rules and the reality that this story is trying to present to us. And a lot of people have pointed out that Musicals, when you go see them on a stage, it's easier to suspend your disbelief because oftentimes there's not a a lot of set pieces. Oftentimes props are mimed or are very simplistic and you just have to go with it. And so the more fantastical and abstract a musical becomes, the easier it is to just buy into it because you've already bought into so much at this point. But in a movie version of a musical it's a lot harder because they go through so much effort to make props and sets. And so if anything feels weird, well, we don't already have this buy-in to whatever they're trying to sell us on. And so when they do start to get weird, we it's harder for us to just naturally buy in. But because superhero movies are inherently something that we as an audience go into expecting to have to just buy into them, and then you mix the musical aspect on top of that, I think it's actually a really weird but good marriage of the suspension of disbelief. Well, it helps with it helps with um, Doctor Horrible Sing Along blog that the the set design and all of that stuff isn't designed to be super realistic. It kind of has um it kind of has the same thing going for it as the um, Hugh Jackman Les Misérables uh, movie. I pronounced that wrong, not because I was trying to pronounce it like a French person, but because my tongue tangled, like, on my teeth as I was trying to say it. Oh, don't, <coughs> hey, don't stress, Greg. We saw that trip coming from a mile away. You called him Huge Backman. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm with you. No well, judgment that's a, here. Well, that's a Freudian it's, slip. <laughs> but it's not inaccurate. Dude has huge back. Huge the dude is ripped. <laughs> Hugh Jackman. Les Miserables. There we go. Huge Ackerman. <laughs> um, it, it has the... So Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog has the same kind of feel to the set design as that, where it's all pretty pretty well done, 
but it's all clearly kind of looking like a soundstage set still. You, you can't avoid that. You, you, the whole thing is designed to give people places to sing and to, to set up certain camera angles. It's not, it's not seeking realism. It, it has a certain degree of polish, but it's not, right. it's not trying to be a realistic portrayal of, say, in the case of Les Miserables, you know, uh, the, of olden time France, or in the case of, uh, in the case of Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog of like Manhattan. It's not, it's not trying to be one of those things. It's just trying to have a certain level of polish. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think it works really well. The other thing that I like about this, this set, as far as the musical goes, is kind of the, the oddity of the locales that this takes place in right i i remember distinctly three sets and i'm, I'm sure there are more but there's this weird creepy basement right? <laughs> dr horrible's basement there, right yes yeah there's the laundromat which is just an odd place for this kind of story to unfold well and it's not just that um, it's a set location it's a recurring set location <laughs> yeah that's what i mean like m many events take place in this laundromat right um and then the auditorium is the last one. Right? Mm -hmm. um, those are the three that spring to my mind. And you know what? It almost makes me feel like it. It feels less like, hey, what if we wrote a musical? And what if you gave a college student again, not as a dunk, but what if you gave a college student the assignment to make a black box musical, where everything had to be entirely pantomimed so that the acoustic setting would be one hundred percent perfect. And so you're like, okay, well, first we'll do a creepy basement because, I mean, a black box theater doesn't look that different from a creepy basement anyway. Uh, and then a laundromat because it's easy to pantomime laundry or wheel in a washing machine or whatever, right? Right. And then we'll do a theater since we're in one already, <laughs> right? Right. Like, it's just these sets are, are bizarre, but they lend themselves to this kind of almost one-act structure of this thing, right? I acknowledge it's not a one-act, but it... If you told me it was, I'd believe you, right? Sure. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think it's really cool. Well, this, I think, should actually bring us into some quick discussion about some other things that were going on at this time in television. Uh, the writer's strike of 2007 and 2008 was going on, and a lot of TV shows were just getting canceled left and right because they didn't have writers anymore to work on them. And, um, well, I mean... Directors do what they do, actors do what they do, and writers do what they do, not to mention all the other production members. Um, and those goals are very different. And while there are some people who can dip their feet in more than one circle, it's actually really difficult to hone your craft and be superb at more than one thing in the entertainment industry. There are people who do it, but it's it's more rare than common. And what's <laughs> Chris Nolan. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but even he frequently relies on the work of his brother Jonathan, right? Like, be... Okay, fine. Jonathan Nolan, <laughs> who wrote and directed Westworld. <laughs> Everybody loves Westworld. <laughs> right, but my point is... Nobody knows what happens in Westworld, but everybody loves it. <laughs> but my point is there, right? Like, this is a very rare thing. Yeah, totally. And even when you do get somebody who dips their feet in... Uh, other pawns they usually have a close relationship with somebody who works more extensively in one field than the other and what's well even chris nolan 
uses, sorry to interrupt, but even Chris Nolan uses a, a similar set of actors in most of his films. Right. Michael Caine right? is in like all of his movies. <laughs> and it's because if you hand Michael Caine a Chris Nolan script, at this point, he knows what to do to kind of bring it to life. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so any, anyway, sorry to No, you're totally that. good. I think it's worth noting that you're right. You're totally right about these fe- these groups of people associating together because it's one of the only ways you can do all of those things. Well, and so here's what I was going to say is one of the things that I've heard, I don't have any sources to confirm this, but it seems reasonable to me, is that Joss Whedon and the team that made that film, which was a relatively small team, like it's really small, the amount of people that went into making that, were setting out to show like, hey, like, yeah, there's a writer's strike, but you can still make quality entertainment. Like, you don't have to put it on hold just because you don't have everything working perfectly. We did it with a team of 30 people, and here's Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Enjoy. <laughs> right? Even if they don't explicitly say that, that's the message that this thing sends. Especially right? because of the time like, that even comes if that wasn't an ex- Yeah, even if it wasn't an explicit goal, that's the message, is that, hey you can go from being a big Hollywood. I mean, you can go from Firefly to like, let's be our own ragtag team amongst the stars. Yeah. The movie stars that is. And, uh, and we'll make something worth watching. Right. Absolutely. Well, I've only got one more question to ask you guys as far as like analyzing the thing and picking it apart. Um, so we're familiar with Campbell's hero's journey, but just in case our listeners aren't, it's essentially the journey that uh, Joseph Campbell proposed in his book, or in a number of his books, that a hero takes. Yeah, sorry about that. It's my yeah, clock yeah. again. It's becoming a recurring character on the show, and I'm actually okay with that. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is uh, Campbell's hero's journey is very well known. Not quite as well known as Camby- Campbell's chunky chicken noodle, but pretty close. Um but then the clock interrupted my joke, so really took the wind out of my sails. But it's it's fine. So you, what do you want to talk about with the hero's journey here, well, Daniel? There's, I think he has like a total of seventeen steps on his hero's journey. Um, but basically, the the journey can be summed up as: hero starts with a normal life. Something happens to make them go on some sort of like adventure or quest. Uh, usually they meet what I believe is referred to as the goddess, goddess, which is typically the love interest. In this case, it's obviously Penny. Um, You've skipped some stuff. I, I've skipped, yeah. yeah, like I said, there's like 17 steps. I'm keeping it simple. Like, there's a mentor you, in there. You skipped the first threshold. I. Do, do you want, would you like to explain this as I gesture to the microphone that I'm talking to instead of a real person? <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I, okay, yes. Yeah, no, if I you can explain it better, okay. by all means, please do. Yeah, so so it he called it originally when he made it. Campbell called this the monomyth, which was this idea that every single story falls into this pattern. It, it follows a set set of steps, right? And these steps, while he argued they could be moved a little bit, they were mainly immutable. So you have the beginning uh, takes place in what's called the ordinary world, a normal world, and then you have a call to adventure. They'll meet a mentor. They'll face some trials and tests, and then they'll cross what Campbell called the first threshold. Uh, which is like a, a first test, uh, your main plot point. And then you'll go uh, after that. That'll take you into what he called the special world. Um, in there, he he had a lot of different things, meeting the goddess or god, um, an atonement with a father or mother, finding love in the underworld, um, an ordeal, dismemberment, wandering, harrowing of the soul. Um, he had like a kind of idea of that you might find a boon there. 
before you cross the second threshold, which is where uh, the the hero kind of learns the rules of the new world. And from there, this, this newer special world is a different thing. And then that's when you start to hear, like, heroes' trials and, and the fall of the hero and, and all kinds of things where where the hero really faces its biggest their biggest challenge. Um, and then they cross the third threshold after their... Um, after their big defeat, which brings them back into the ordinary world where they have their final climax, and then what's called resurrection, where the hero really comes to a catharsis about who they are, and then the, the story ends. Um, so it's, it's kind of this big, complicated circle, but, but Campbell's thesis was this idea that it was all linked, and it was all relatively immutable. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog kind of flies in the face of that, which is what I think you're going to get at, Nathan. Yeah, well, and I wanted to say, like, if any of our listeners at home go, yeah, like, I feel like that applies to some stories, but not all, you're probably right. Like, yeah, you're right. right. It's been acknowledged that... (laughs) The second Campbell... Oh, it's been acknowledged that the hero's journey is somewhat somewhat Eurocentric and that Campbell is a person of European origin or, or or, or West centric or something like that. Campbell is a person from what we think of as the West, and he really stretches to make this apply not only... He has to really stretch to make it apply to every story of Western origin, but then he really stretches to make it apply to every story in general, and it just doesn't work in all cases. It's a lot of the time a big stretch to find all of his different steps in every single story because not every story really has all of those steps and that's not a bad thing. Right. And now it is worth saying that there are lots, like hundreds if not thousands of stories that we could point to that we're familiar with that do follow the hero's journey. Uh, But there's also easily that many that don't. Um, But superhero stories tend to follow it. Yeah, to a degree. But even after Campbell put this on paper... Yes, there was the problem that Greg noted of the accidental occidentalism. Go ahead, say that ten times fast. <laughs> but this idea that it was accidentally Western centric, right? Yeah. But there was also the thing that once he put this down, people, you know, college students after smoking some pot immediately decided to try and subvert it. Right? It was like the very first thing they did with this paper. <laughs> so uh, recently, yeah, it's it's been turned on its head a lot. So it's not really the monomyth that he thought it was. Uh, But Captain Horrible especially doesn't adhere to this, I don't think. But I think it does rely on it. It it definitely relies on our expectations. That's what I mean, yeah. Of superhero movies falling into this hero's journey pattern, yeah. Because he does follow a lot of the steps of it. Um, Because, I mean, there's the call to adventure. He meets the goddess in the form of Penny... He goes to the underworld for a long time and tries to figure out, you know, how he's going to actually, like, come out on top of all the problems he's facing. Um, Being that he locks himself in the basement for a while and tries to build a death ray. Um, (laughs) Right? That that is the underworld in this case, right? I'm not stretching on that. Um, I think it's one read, sure. (laughs) But what happens is we all, I, I I think it's fair to say that uh, Dr. Horrible fails at the end. He doesn't kill his nemesis. The goddess dies, and he ends up unhappy, right? <laughs> um, and then it ends. Like, there is no resurrection of the hero. It's just... it end- it- It's like somebody started going through the hero's journey with us, 
and then cut us off like two thirds of the way there and said, "Okay, that's the movie." It's uh, it's a D and D character who uh, who died partway through the dungeon and just never picked up playing him again or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Or or I saw this uh, meme. I. Describing memes is always terrible for audio, but I saw this meme that was the frames from the Harry Potter movies in where they're on the train and he meets Hermione for the first time and she says, I only know a couple of spells. And then she says, Avada Kedavra. And then it just says, directed by Chris Columbus. <laughs> That's basically what we've got here. It's like, what if the only spell Hermione had known was the killing spell and the movie just ended there, right? <laughs> That's what we're dealing with in, in Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. He, he just, it's like they... It's like when you open a pie and somebody has already eaten two slices of it. <laughs> That's what we've got here with the hero's journey. Yeah, um, and I think it's really... It's really kind of Yeah, fun. it's very clever, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, especially where you're... Especially where we've already talked about the commentary that it naturally is about the writer's strike and about superhero movies and kind of this cookie-cutter storytelling and they said like guys you don't have to do things the way it's always been done you can be different and it can be fun and it can be enjoyable and it can be talked about and win awards for its music and you know like <laughs> all of the things that dr horrible yeah, totally. right yeah i think this is one of those cases where who knows if that's what they were trying to do but regardless of what they were trying to do this is what they did right and and dr horrible stands in this kind of uh, hallmark of like how do you I don't think it subverts the hero's journey right it, it, it rests soundly in the realm it just doesn't complete the hero's journey right you know and I think that that in and of itself is, is meritous in its own way yeah um well I think that's about all the time we've got for Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog um we've officially talked about it for longer than the actual movie runs for um <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We did it, folks. Hang our hats up, everybody. Guys, we did the literary criticism thing. <laughs> we, welcome to my world. We are official. You all have descended into the underworld. <laughs> welcome to my realm. No, we descended I'm when we descended guy. a while ago when we d- joined this podcast, and now we've now we've uh, figured out the rules of the special world. Um, True. This we've crossed the second threshold. <laughs> Now for the downfall of the resurrection. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Uh, which of us is going to die? Greg, I nominate you. Okay. Um, no, but... Uh, there's a there's a downfall, but we also have to leave the underworld through what the what Campbell called the magic flight. Oh! So, who, who's ready for a magic flight? Let's do this. All right, thing. I'm here for it. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, uh, did you guys like this movie? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's You, you guys going to be uh, singing the music every so often? I'm probably going to rewatch it later later on today. Um, I, now that I know the songs. Every once in a while. It's funny. I don't really remember the songs from this very well, but one of every once in a while I will be walking and doing nothing and all of a sudden into my mind like a carrier pigeon from hell <laughs> comes the the lyrics <laughs> he rides across the country, <laughs> the thoroughbred. Greg started singing. He just it needs evaluation, <laughs> so let the games begin. It's so good. Bad horse, bad horse. Um, <laughs> the bad horse chorus. It's very good. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think um, that that this is 
I, it's good. It's quality. Yeah. I, I'd be interested to hear anybody else's opinions on this. Um, if somebody thinks that maybe it doesn't hold up in a way that we didn't acknowledge, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, you can DM us or tag us at Peep This Noise on Twitter. You can contact us at mail at peepthisnoise.com. Both good ways to get in touch with us. If you liked what you've heard in this show today, uh, you can visit us at peepthisnoise.com. You should probably put the www dot in front of that bad boy because I don't understand the internet, and so you need it to get to the website. Um, but yeah, thanks for sticking around. We, uh, we're glad that you take the time to listen to this podcast, and we really appreciate those of you who do. It seems like more people have been downloading it recently, which we really appreciate that. Uh, if you want to contact us through one of those ways, uh, on Twitter or by email, and say hi, we'd, we'd love to hear for you, from you. Uh, next time, we're going to be talking about an album uh, called Stranger in the Alps by singer-songwriter Phoebe Bridgers. Um, I picked this one out. Uh, I do want to put a bit of a content warning up front. This album does have a couple of swears, but more importantly than that, it, it deals pretty heavily with death of various kinds, uh, like folk music tends to do. So uh, if you're really sensitive to death of yourself or, or of others, um, this might be one to, to hold off on. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a bummer at times, but it's really worth looking into and it's really worth the analysis. So uh, I did want to put that heads up. Uh, yeah, if you, if you haven't taught, told your kids yet that their rabbit doesn't go to a special farm, maybe don't play this around them. Um, but other than that, I think we'll, we'll have a really good time discussing it. It's, it's pretty quality, quality music. Um, I'd like to give a special thank you to a different musical artist, uh, Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers, for allowing us to use their song Don't Know Why from the album California Light. That's the song that bumpers our show on the front, and you're going to hear it at the end. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, I don't know what else to say. It's a great album. Everybody should listen to it. Go look it up. Um, once again, thanks for listening to Peep This Noise. And remember, everybody likes bad things. So open up your mind.